Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. The U.S. is escalating a bipartisan Cold War, one that supports the military-industrial complex, endless proxy wars, and gutting what's left of the welfare state. However, there's a split in the ruling class on how best to guarantee the hegemony of U.S. empire. At first glance, this split might look deep. On one side are the far-right America Firsters, led by people like Trump, who claim to want out of Ukraine. But that's only because they want to divert the country's Cold War resources solely toward what they see as the ultimate enemy, China. And then there are the neocons and liberals who want to take on Russia and China at the same time. Both are committed to U.S. empire. Both are proponents of recruiting India for this new Cold War in an effort to divide BRICS and isolate China and Russia. Both believe in sanctions. Both supported a coup in Venezuela, which Trump, who's tried to fashion himself as anti-war on occasion, recently admitted to. Both are willing to go to extreme lengths to uphold dollar hegemony. And both are proponents of sacrificing Europe for U.S. interests. In other words, both are committed imperialists with the same agenda, just a different pathway for how to get there. Here to discuss how to navigate it all as the U.S. empire gets desperate to maintain itself in an increasingly multipolar world is Ben Norton, a Latin America-based journalist and founder of the Geopolitical Economy Report. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available for Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Ben, welcome back to the show. It's always a real pleasure, Rania. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to have you on. We always have such a great discussion and, you know, the audience loves you um, because you rock. So let's just jump right on into it. There's so many important uh, issues that you've been covering related to uh, escalating Cold War tensions uh, with with, uh, the U.S. against Russia and China, uh, as well as some, you know, recent uh, things with Trump admitting to, the you know, attempting a coup in Venezuela. You've written about... Uh, the recent uh, visit between Biden and Modi regarding India, and you kind of did an in-depth thing there about the U.S. pushing it back against dollar hegemony, um, and on and on. You've been covering, you've been doing such excellent coverage at your outlet, uh, Inflation in Europe. So I want to get to all of these different topics. Uh, but, you know, something I really want to start with, which I don't think received the attention it deserved, although you did cover it, was um, something that Trump recently said. And that is that, you know, earlier uh, in June, he was talking about Venezuela um, and he basically admitted to the fact that, that, like that we were there, he, you know, he was there, his administration wanted to go there, take over and literally take the oil. Um, And I want to just play that clip real quick before we, uh, before uh, I get your take on it, but here it is. Venezuela. How about we're buying oil from Venezuela? When I left, Venezuela was ready to collapse. We would have taken it over. We would have gotten all that oil. It would have been right next door. And that's Maduro's response, which you can go to the Breakthrough News Twitter feed and and Instagram page to go check out. I do love that Maduro responded, that this basically like confirms everything that they had been saying. But the reason I raise that is for a couple of things. First of all, I mean, one theme that I do want to talk about is how much all of this is quite bipartisan uh, when it comes to the way the U.S. acts around the world and all of the whether we're talking about regime change in Venezuela or uh, this escalating Cold War against Russia and China. But I wanted to raise this specifically because Trump also does like to fashion himself as this kind of anti-war warrior. 
Um, and so do his sort of acolytes in Congress, whether we're talking about people like Josh Hawley or uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But this kind of proves the opposite. So I just kind of wanted to get your take on that statement he made, because uh, that's something that you also were covering as it was happening. You visited Venezuela uh, quite a few times, as well as that sort of aspect of it where, okay, clearly this guy is not anti-war, and that's like a BS statement. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, a few things to say. First of all, the people who did report on the statement from Trump, and there were a few, and they deserve credit, also, I think a lot of them kind of misunderstood what he said. He didn't just say that we would get Venezuela's oil. He said we would take over Venezuela. If you listen closely to what he said, we would take over the country and have access to all that oil. So, I mean, this is even worse than the way it was reported by many people. It wasn't just about oil. It was about colonizing Venezuela. The narrative that we were fed when the coup attempt started in 2019 was that Juan Guaido, this little known right wing politician, just simply decided to go out in public in Caracas and announce that he's interim president. And then the U.S. just recognized this plucky Venezuelan politician as the interim president of the country. No, 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 no. Trump was saying very clearly that we were trying to install our puppets in Venezuela to take over the country. And it was a coup attempt, which is what we had all said at the time. And of course, this was also admitted in another revealing quote from Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, in an interview that he did on CNN with Jake Tapper, where he boasted of the experience he has is organize, he has organizing coups. And he said that, you know, it's very difficult to organize coups. And then Jake Tapper says, well, where's an example? And then he names Venezuela. So, I mean, this is just more evidence showing that it was a coup attempt. But the, I, the narrative that Trump in any way was anti-war is completely absurd. First of all, what Trump did against Venezuela was a war. It wasn't a conventional war, but it was absolutely a war. It was an economic war. It was an information war. There was cyber war, attacks on Venezuelan civilian infrastructure. There also, I mean, were many forms of unconventional war, including an attempted invasion known as Bay of Piglets in May 2020, there was an attempted invasion of Venezuela, including two former Green Berets, who right now are, are prisoners in Venezuela for trying to invade the country. So, and we know we have lots of evidence pointing to Trump being involved in the invasion. There were reports of Jordan Goudreau, the, the mercenary who oversaw the operation, said that he met at Mar-a-Lago with top Trump officials who gave the approval. One of the Colombian plotters who was involved said the CIA was involved as well. So, I mean, there was every kind of war that you can imagine, excluding U.S. troops on the ground, basically. Although, again, there were two former U.S. troops on the ground. But, I mean, obviously, as you know, Rania, it's not even just Venezuela. I mean, look at Trump's foreign policy record. He murdered the top Iranian official, Qasem Soleimani, and the top Iraqi general, Abu Mahib al-Muhandis. Mm -hmm. And al-Muhandis had played a key role in helping to defeat ISIS along with Iran, along with Qasem Soleimani. So Trump murdered the top Iraqi general and the top Iranian general who helped defeat ISIS. Then Trump expanded the war in Yemen. And China helped to end the war in Yemen, not, not Biden, it was China. Uh, Trump did not end the war in Afghanistan. For all of the many legitimate criticisms of Biden, it was Biden that ended the war in Afghanistan after 20 years. Trump 
continued militarily occupying Syria. And he boasted in an interview on Fox News, we're taking the oil. We have the oil. We have seized the oil. He said it like 15 times. He just repeated himself. I have troops in Syria that are taking the oil. So at every single stage, you can look. Trump did not. Yeah, people say that Trump didn't start a new war. But again, that misunderstands that we're living in an era where most U.S. wars are not direct conventional military wars. They're unconventional hybrid wars. In that case, Trump waged many wars against Venezuela, against Iran. Trump oversaw what was called a maximum pressure campaign. And it's been reported by Yahoo News that Trump personally oversaw the approval of kinetic operations by the Pentagon. That is to say, attacks on Iranian infrastructure. And it was referred to as a shadow war. That's the, that's the language that the Yahoo News used, this shadow war. And you probably remember, Rania, in Iran and other parts of West Asia, there were a series of strange attacks on infrastructure. And it was never really revealed who it was, but it was very likely either the U.S. or Israel. And we have evidence that Trump approved those kinds of kinetic attacks on infrastructure across West Asia, especially targeting Iran and its allies. So it's just completely a reversal of history. And now we see that Trump and many of these so-called populist Republicans are calling for war on Mexico, the, the southern U.S. neighbor. They're yeah. calling for invading Mexico in the name of fighting drug cartels, which is completely absurd. And then finally, I mean, we could spend all day talking about the trade war against China that Trump started. So it's just a ridiculous narrative. It's a ridiculous narrative. And it's also, you know, I mean, OK, so I do want to give credit, by the way, uh, Amanda Yee wrote this really good piece for Liberation News, kind of going into this like research, it's the resurgence of this America first isolationism, basically this kind of like Trumpian far right opposition to like NATO and the war in Ukraine that I had mentioned before. And I mean, this is something that I, I, I you and I have talked about before as well. Right. When, when we talk about these far right figures on the Trump right that oppose the war, the NATO war in Ukraine. Um, and how there is this like, a, you know, this belief by some people that you should ally with these people because this is like something bigger than left and right. Right. Like it's like this war in Ukraine is very dangerous because you have two nuclear armed countries um, and on and on and on. However, like this to me suggests that there is this like split in the ruling class. Right. Because what this is really about when it comes down to it, it's not because there's a group of people among the Republicans who want to end wars. <laughs> they just want to, they just don't want this particular proxy war because it diverts from the war they actually want, which is the war with China. And here, of course, I'm referring to like the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Josh Hollies, the Tucker Carlson's and the Donald Trump's. However, I would also argue that like Trump and rhetoric may say these things, but you know, under his administration, uh, he broke, he like pulled the US out of all these treaties with Russia and hired like a bunch of crazy neocons to run his foreign policy. But anyways, Ben, I'm curious your take on that question, if I'm playing devil's advocate here, um, in terms of like, okay, why wouldn't you ally with these people when they're saying we shouldn't go to war? Isn't that an opportunity to make the tent for um, ending the proxy war in Ukraine bigger? Does it really matter the reasons why they want to end it if they want to end it? Well, they don't want to end it. They're not anti-war. I mean, what have they tangibly done to try to end the proxy war in Ukraine? Nothing. It's rhetoric. And it's because a Democrat is president and they can use this to criticize the Biden administration. And in many European countries, there are 
kind of centrist, ostensibly center-left, although they're all neoliberal parties, like, for instance, the SPD in Germany. So the far-right opposition in Germany is doing the same thing. But they're not actually organizing protests against the war. In fact, there have been protests in Germany organized by leftists, by anti-imperialists and socialists like Savim Dagdalen and Sarah Wagenacht. It's not by the far-right AFD party. Again, this is just partisan politics, and they're just using this as rhetoric. Here's another example of this. You mentioned that Trump tore up multiple arms treaties with Russia. So he played a big role in helping to get us into the moment we're in now. Obviously, Democrats did as well. It was bipartisan. But Trump also, in addition to tearing up the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, which is what would allow Ukraine to host U.S. nuclear weapons aimed at Russia, which, again, Zelensky was talking about that. And that was one of the factors in causing this new stage of the war. And that's why Russia demanded security guarantees in late 2021. And the US, NATO and the EU ignored those Russian security guarantee demands. But furthermore, Trump also tore up other treaties like the Open Skies treaties, Treaty and Trump sent lethal weapons to Ukraine that even Obama hadn't sent. And again, Obama was just as much of a hawk. And Obama helped his administration helped oversee the 2014 coup that overthrew Ukraine's democratically elected president, Viktor Yanukovych. And in response, this set off the civil war. It began in 2014. According to the United Nations, 14,000 Ukrainians died from 2014 until the end of 2021, before Russia invaded. But the point is that, that the Obama administration was getting pressured by many of the hawks, including Republicans, to send lethal weapons to Ukraine and Obama refused to do it because he didn't want to escalate the conflict. It was Trump that sent this le these lethal weapons to Ukraine. And if you go back and you listen to Trump's rhetoric, he was criticizing Obama for not sending enough weapons to Ukraine. And he, he said, Obama only sent pillows and blankets to Ukraine. I sent deadly weapons. So at every single stage, Trump tries to rewrite history. Like, for instance, he claims that he opposed the Iraq war, but actually, just like Tucker Carlson, he supported the Iraq war and later criticized the Iraq war. So you can always find Trump having two ex exactly contrary positions and his supporters say, look, he's anti-war. They ignore all the times that he expressed support for war. So it's completely opportunistic. And finally, again, I'm, I, I need to stress this point. Trump's allies, and according to Rolling Stone, they had a report, Trump himself, are calling for attacking Mexico. And we do know that when Trump was president, he called for bombing supposed drug cartel sites in Mexico, as if like you can just look at a satellite and there's like a cartoon flag, like a like a Bugs Bunny cartoon that says here is a drug cartel. So you can just <laughs> bomb. I mean, it's completely absurd. We know that Trump wanted to bomb Mexico. I mean, how can people say this with a straight face? They're buying into this ridiculous partisan propaganda from Republicans who are claiming to be against the war now because it's a Democrat overseeing the war. Another quick point, Ronnie. Now we see that other members of NATO are saying they're going to increase their military spending to 2% of GDP, which is technically what they're, they're required to do. Hmm, who popularized that talking point? It was Trump. When Trump was president, first he said, well, I'm against NATO. And then he was like, actually, NATO should be stronger and he was pressuring other members of NATO to increase their military spending to 2% of GDP. This was Trump's idea that is now being implemented. 
So at every single stage, once again, I mean, Trump is a complete fraud. And then finally, you, you mentioned that these right-wing forces that maybe will sometimes criticize the war in Ukraine because Biden's overseeing it. If you listen to a lot of their rhetoric, it's not, it's not anti-war rhetoric. It's saying that we should wage war on a different country. Tucker Carlson always says this. Tucker Carlson says, Russia can be our ally against China. We should form an alliance with Russia for a war against China. And this is right. the same for Marjorie Taylor Greene. They all say, we're fighting the wrong war. The real target of the war that we should wage is against China. That's not an anti-war position. That is a pro-war position trying to just change the target of the war. Exactly, exactly. And I'm so happy you you clarified that. And, you know, I just want to read this uh, quote from uh, Josh Hawley recently because it really goes into what you're saying. He was uh, saying recently, um, quote, I'm sure we'll soon be voting on yet another supplemental aid package to Ukraine in like a negative way. Meanwhile, China is literally in our backyard now. And this is, of course, him referring to this alleged Chinese spy base in Cuba. And this is also a segue for me to ask you about that because it's something that you wrote about and covered. So tell me about this Chinese uh, spy base in Cuba that, by the way, there was like a pretty bipartisan frustration with this alleged spy base. Well, yeah, not just bipartisan. In fact, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, came out publicly and said the story is not true. And John Kirby, who is the head of the National Security Council in the Biden administration, former Pentagon spokesman, he said his story is false. And I think it, it's pretty easy to explain why. The Pentagon, some top generals are actually getting a little antsy. They're a little scared because the relations between the U.S. and China have deteriorated so quickly that there is a possibility in the near future of a conventional war. And the Pentagon has been doing a lot of war games. And the war games do not come out well for the U.S. The U.S. consistently loses these war games. And by the way, Japan and South Korea and separatist forces, the U.S. backs in Taiwan, also end up being devastated by some kind of conflict with China. So it seems like some parts of the Pentagon are trying to put the brakes on this insane attempt to try to start a war with China that some of the hawks and like the State Department are pushing for. So I think this is another example. We saw this, for instance, Ronnie, you probably remember during the war in Syria, where there were sometimes some conflicts between the Pentagon and the CIA. And I think we're seeing something similar here. And we see clearly the CIA is pushing these fake stories about Cuba. First, they claimed that China was going to build a spy base in Cuba. Now they say China is going to build a military base in Cuba. And if you read all of the, the so-called reports in corporate media, they all cite anonymous U.S. intelligence officials or anonymous people who are privy to the intelligence. But it's clear that this is being fed by U.S. spy agencies who are at loggerheads with the Pentagon, and they're pushing for more and more tensions with China. And it's so similar to some recent fake stories, like, for instance, Havana syndrome. You might remember for years, not just for a few months, for years, every major media outlet in the U.S. published stories claiming that there were these exotic sci-fi weapons of, you know, advanced, uh, you know, directed energy weapons that Cuba and or Russia and or China were using to attack U.S. diplomats and spies. And it began and ostensibly began in Cuba, which is why it's called Havana syndrome. And it's completely false. 
There have been numerous investigations by U.S. government agencies that found no evidence. In fact, they found other evidence for exp explanations, basically saying it's psychogenic. That is, it's, it's psychological. It's in the minds of these paranoid U.S. spies and diplomats who watch too many awful Netflix movies about the evil Russian spies using a ray gun to attack them. And in fact, the CIA had been pushing this fake story for years. And last year, the, in, in 2022, the, former, the head of the CIA um, came out publicly, William Burns, Mr. Burns, if you will, and he came out publicly and said that, <laughs> exactly, uh, Mr. Burns said that they, the CIA investigated and it, this Havana syndrome is not caused by foreign adversaries. There are completely scientific, you know, uh, there are rational explanations for what is happening. So we see this pattern again and again, where the intelligence agencies feed a fake story to the media through anonymous officials. So we can never fact check them and there are never consequences for them because we don't have their names. And they're feeding in these fake stories, obviously to push a particular political agenda. And then it later is shown to be false. And in this moment, what's unique is the Pentagon is pushing back against it again, because I think they're concerned about escalations with China and the situation is really becoming dangerous. I mean, this just goes to show like how ridiculous uh, the U.S. and like bipartisan, uh, I'm talking bipartisan kind of ridiculousness of trying to like counter U.S. decline in really absurd ways. And this is one of them is just coming up with these ridiculous stories like there's a Chinese spy base. And speaking of countering, you also recently covered how Congress held this um, hearing titled Dollar Dominance, Preserving the U.S. Dollar Status as the Global Reserve Currency. Um, basically just about that, about pushing back against de-dollarization, uh, which we're seeing taking place increasingly with these kinds of like global institutions with countries that are trying to trade outside of the dollar. It's freaking the U.S. out. Uh, so I'm curious if you can talk about that. You actually picked out a lot of highlights uh, that we saw during this like two hour hearing that also, by the way, didn't get that much attention. But the U.S. is freaking out about the potential downfall of like dollar hegemony. Yeah, it's funny. I, I mentioned I did a video about that in an article and I mentioned that I, I listened to the full two hours of the hearing and it was, it was so schizophrenic, the tone, because at one moment, the same person, whether it was a lawmaker or one of the right wing economists that was invited to be a, uh, an expert testimony. Um, what was incredible is this, the same person at one moment would say, the dollar is the greatest thing since sliced bread. There's no way it's going to be challenged. It's inevitable that it's always going to be the global reserve currency. And then a few minutes later, they would be like, China and Russia are conspiring to, to take away the hegemony of the dollar. And they're going to, you know, they're going to destroy everything that our freedom is based on. So, I mean, it's funny because as someone who covers this issue a lot, I have been told by, you know, uh, for instance, I didn't, I recently was on a panel a discussion and there was a someone from a think tank in DC who said de-dollarization is not happening. She said that clearly. She said, she said it's basically fake. It's not happening. And meanwhile, if it's not happening, why is the Congress holding special hearings about de-dollarization? I mean, it's and, and people in Washington just live in this in this bubble where they can't see what's going on around the world. The fact that it was that this hearing was even held in the first place is clearly a testament to the fact that yes, de-dollarization is happening. Now, 
there were some people in the hearing who said, which I do agree with this, that this is not going to happen immediately in the short term. And I do think that there are a lot of, you know, uh, people on YouTube who have like all the thumbnails with like fire and it's like the dollar is going to be toilet paper. No, obviously that's ridiculous. <laughs> but I mean, we are seeing a very significant, profound historical change. And basically every single day, I mean, I follow this stuff closely. Just today, for instance, it was announced that Nicaragua and Russia are de-dollarizing their trade and Nicaragua is going to use Russian rubles and its own currency, the Cordoba, to buy imports from Russia. So every single day, there's another example of that. Ethiopia just announced that it wants to join the BRICS. It's applied to join the BRICS system. And in August, there's going to be a meeting of the heads of state of BRICS, potentially in South Africa, although the, the location may move. So there are a lot of developments happening here. In fact, the foreign ministers of the BRICS just held a meeting in South Africa Mm -hmm. And they announced that they're going to, to try to find a way to create a new global reserve currency. And by the way, at that BRICS foreign ministers meeting, there were also representatives of other countries that attended, including foreign ministers or top diplomats from Iran, Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, Bangladesh. So, I mean, there are a lot of countries that are interested in, in Egypt was also there. So anyway, the point is that if you go to this hearing, there were a few interesting things to take away from it. One is that they invited a series of right-wing economists, many who worked in the Trump administration, because right now the Republicans have a slim majority in the House. And this was a House, uh, a House Financial Services Committee hearing, although Democrats did participate as well. And they invited these right-wing Trump economists, and they all talked about how evil China is and China's attempt to challenge the dollar and all of that. But interestingly, several of them warned that by overusing sanctions, the U.S. is weakening dollar hegemony. And in fact, the current Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, admitted the same thing in an interview recently with Fareed Zakaria on CNN. She also admitted the fact that by imposing sanctions on so many countries, it's pressuring other countries around the world to seek financial alternatives to the U.S. dollar and alternatives to US, do U.S. dominated financial institutions, like, for instance, the SWIFT interbank messaging system. China and Russia have both developed alternatives to the SWIFT interbank messaging system. And there was an economist who spoke in this hearing who has written a book about this. It's called Bucking the Buck. And he said in this <laughs> hearing that the U.S. really needs to be more careful and impose fewer sanctions because basically the U.S. is, is accelerating de-dollarization by imposing sanctions. A few other interesting comments in the hearing were that many people bragged about how many benefits the U.S. dollar being the global reserve currency gives to the United States, which is funny because at the same time, the New York Times pundit, uh, Paul Krugman, who you know won a Nobel Prize despite being like functionally illiterate, um, <laughs> and Paul Krugman constantly publishes all these articles in the New York Times insisting that the U.S. does not get any benefits from having the dollar's global reserve currency. It's exaggerated. The idea of exorbitant privilege is, is not real. And yet you listen to this hearing, there, there are so many people saying we have so many great benefits from the supremacy of the dollar. That's the word they use, the supremacy. And that's why we have to defend it. And then finally, one other quick note in this hearing a takeaway was that a former Treasury top official under Trump named Marshall Billingsley. Uh, it sounds like a fake name, but this guy oversaw sanctions. This is complete neocon. 
and he oversaw sanctions policy in the treasury. And he specifically warned of the central banks of China and Russia decreasing the amount of dollar denominated assets they hold in their foreign exchange reserves and instead buying gold. Now, I'm not a gold bug. Like, I'm not saying that the currency should be backed by gold. But the reason that he didn't like the fact that the central banks of China and Russia are buying gold instead of dollars is because you can't sanction gold. You can mm. sanction dollars, right? Because the U.S. and the, the EU seized half of the Russian central bank's foreign reserves, which is more than $300 billion worth of dollar and euro denominated assets, right? Because the Russian central bank doesn't physically have you know, $200 billion of treasury bonds like printed on paper, right? Those are treasury bonds that are owed to it, but a cent, but those dollar denominated assets ultimately go through the U.S. banking system. So right. the U.S. and the EU was able to freeze that money, which is also what the U.S. and EU did to Iran, to the Venezuelan central bank, to the Afghan central bank. But obviously, if they do have gold, you can't sanction gold in the same way. So he complained that by de-dollarizing and investing in other assets, it's also a way for countries to get around sanctions. Right. And um, I, know I think that's all super like pertinent to it, it's funny. The contradiction is so funny because on the one hand, there's this admission of the overuse of sanctions. And on the other hand, they're like, no, but we're going to keep using them because we're going to keep using sanctions as a weapon of war. And it, it just speaks again to like the fact that like the U.S. countering this kind of like decline that's in slow motion right now doesn't make any sense. Like their decisions don't have logic to them. However, I do want to ask real quick about that this is more of like a domestic issue that is at the heart of inflation in both the U.S. and Europe. You wrote about this, and that is this recent IMF study about how corporate profits have been the biggest contributor to inflation in Europe since 2021. And I think that's, a su that's super important that even the IMF is saying that because it's also been a, a big contributor to inflation in the United States as well. Um, even though, of course, you can also say, yeah, the war in Ukraine, the sanctions, all of these other things, the sort of post-COVID, like, uh, or, or maybe during COVID, I should say, like economic turmoil. But as this report notes, that's all like kind of over. So now it's really the corporate profits. And I think that speaks to, while on the one hand, you have the global north led by the U.S. trying to maintain its hegemony around the world and sort of not being as successful as they used to be in doing that because of the rise of these other powers and multipolarity. There's also this thing happening on the inside of these countries. And that is the sort of like neoliberal decay that's leading to a decline in like the standard of living maybe is one way to put it in Europe and the United States. Anyways, I guess that's my brief take on it, but can you talk about the significance of this report and why you covered it? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. We are seeing a massive decline in living standards, especially in Europe. And we should keep in mind that, you know, the, the inflation in the U.S. has been a, a big problem. Although if you look at core inflation in the U.S. compared to Europe, Europe is still several times worse. And the Eurozone officially has entered recession, including Germany, which is like the economic powerhouse of Europe and one of the world's main manufacturing countries. And Germany has entered recession. And one of the big reasons for that is the issue of energy and the fact that Europe has boycotted energy from its top energy partner. Russia had provided, it was the largest provider of oil and gas to Europe for decades. 
And basically overnight, they were trying to cut that off. And then, of course, now the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up and no one knows who that could have possibly been, well, right? I don't know. There was like something something in the New York Times I read about these Ukrainians. Ukrainian fishermen or whatever Ukrainian who dropped their passports. Yacht with a yacht, with a yacht. A Ukrainian with a yeah, yacht. Yeah, because when you go and they drop their passports, because when you're going to commit an act of international terrorism, you just drop, you know, you bring your passport with you and then you actually drop. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, um, but the point is that the situation in Europe economically is actually significantly worse than in the U.S. And if you read this study from the IMF, they concluded, IMF economists concluded that in terms of the recent inflation we've seen since coming out of the pandemic, 45% of it was caused by corporate profits and 40% was caused by the increase in import costs. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.